Um, he then said, Sir, you owe it to yourself. I was like, whoa, whoa. Sir? That's my father you're thinking of. And, um, and I thought, I owe it to myself? Hmm. And I said, ah, this is about my rights. See, we're all about our rights in America, aren't we? I'm not talking about our civil rights. I'm talking about our personal rights. Like the other day I was at Dunkin' Donuts and um, waiting. I was the only one in line. It was late at night. And this lady comes up right next to me and orders. I was... And they're helping her. I'm like... And for a moment, I was really... I was going to say something like... Uh, you know, and I said, you know what? Is it really that serious? But you know, I'm trained to think, yes, it is that serious. That's serious. That's a serious offense right there. Because I'm thinking of my personal rights. It's like when we're driving and somebody dares cuts in front of me. You know, we think, whoa, that's an injustice. It was interesting when I went to the Philippines. People cut each other all the time on the road. Nobody gets angry. I was like, wow, this is really... That was one of the most culturally... Uh, eye-opening things that I experienced. No road rage. Where is that at? And um, we fought our rights. But I'm going to point out today that that's really nothing new. People have been flaunting their rights for a long time and the Corinthian church especially struggled with flaunting their rights and their Christian um, freedom, their liberties in Christ. And um, what I want us to to um, really ask ourselves is, do our rights and liberties hinder uh, the advancement of the gospel? And we need to see what's behind the idol. And, what, and hopefully we can learn a little bit more about that today. Before I do that, though, let me open a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for bringing us here. Lord, we know that it is nothing short of a miracle that you wake us up every morning, you gather us up together in your name to worship you. Thank you for that, Lord. As we open up your word, I pray that we would understand it, that it would cut to our hearts, Lord, that it would transform us. pray these things in your name. Amen. Before we dive into the text, I want us to hop up our DeLoreans running on about 1.21 gigawatts of power and end up in first century Corinth. With a population of around 200,000 people, this seaport was a progressive city of the day. We have to understand some things about it. It was a very diverse city. And with diversity brings not just a diversity in culture, but a diversity in religion. And a diversity in religion means many gods are represented there. That was that city. According to the ESV study Bible, the worship of these gods were fully integrated into governmental civic festivals, trade guilds, and social clubs. You see, per... Paganism permeated this sexually saturated culture. It was a place that valued knowledge and valued intellect. It was a place where an exclusive God was not welcome.
The illusion is gone. Now you can see the wire. I'll just try to tuck it in here. All right. As I was saying, um, paganism was um, really central, central in this culture. They valued, they valued knowledge and intellect. It was a place where an exclusive God was not welcome. Okay. We see this throughout history. We're going through First Kings in, in adult learning, and, and we realize that um, Israel became a place um, that endorsed polytheism, the worship and belief of many gods, and one exclusive god was not tolerated. He, he would be tolerated in the mix of the other gods, but once he starts to claim that he is the one true God, once people start to claim that only he is worthy of worship, that is when people have a problem. Okay. These were the obstacles. And, and actually, when I think about this city, I often think, is this first century Corinth or modern day Chicago? Right? It seems like, we, like things have not changed uh, very much. Uh, yeah, maybe it's not as, um, as flagrant. Maybe it is not as visible as it was in Corinth, but, but idols are, are real today. These were the obstacles in which Paul had to overcome in dealing with the Corinthian church. He's dealing with people who have come out of this culture, who are saved, and maybe hanging on to things in this, in this culture and bringing them into the body of Christ. And the text this morning comes from 1 Corinthians 10. And if you would turn there with me, I'm going to begin reading verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and that all passed through the sea, and all were all baptized into Moses, and in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate of the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, for most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. First point. There is only one God. There is only one God. Um, let me give you maybe the geekiest illustration I've ever given, and I'm actually quite proud of it, so try not to laugh too hard. In the movie The Lord of the Rings, and yes, I read the book, so anybody wants to challenge me. In the movie The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, the wizard Gandalf, the Grey, is confronting his wayward wizard friend, Saruman the White, on the Tower of Orthanc in the southern parts of Isengard. Geeky? Thank you. It is on this tower that Gandalf delivers a dramatic warning before hopping on the back of Gwarhir, the Wind Lord, the swiftest of the great eagles. Sorry. Anyway, we know that the movie is about this ring, this ring with so much power, and that Salman, Salman, this wizard, wants this ring because he wants the power. But Gandalf says something to him. He says, there is only one Lord of the Ring, only one who can bend it to his will. And he does not share power. Then he jumps on the eagle's back and flies away. It's a great scene. The Lord of the Ring is the Dark Lord Sauron. And what he's trying to say is that Saruman and Sauron will never become partners. Sauron wants all the power. 
In a lot of ways, though, I can, we can draw this illustration really to both God and Satan, right? There's only one Satan. He does not share power. So if you reject Christ and, and um, you live for yourself or whatever, do not believe for a single moment that Satan has the best of intentions for you. Just because he reaches out and says, together we will rule this galaxy, doesn't mean that he, he's sincere about it. It was Satan's lust that caused God to humble him. On the other hand, there is only one God, only one that exists, and he does not share his glory. You cannot give yourself both to God and to idols. The same God that the Israelites served coming out of Egypt is the same God that the Corinthians were serving in this polytheistic culture and is the same God that we serve today. And to me, that gives me great comfort. But let's look deeper at what Paul wrote them. He starts off with this word for. And of course, we understand if, if, we're, if we're studying scripture that this is a continuation of a thought. And this, in order to understand this, we need to hop back to um, 1 Corinthians 8. And so if you would turn back with me, let me just read these verses, starting in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating the food offered to idols, we should know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom, all, and for whom we exist, I'm sorry, for, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees... You, who have knowledge, eating in the idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat." lest I make my brother stumble. Now, Paul addresses this, this topic really with the first verse here. Now concerning, now about food, sacrifice to idols. And this is obviously um, a question that they had and that he's addressing to them. And he warns against knowledge, first of all. He says that knowledge has a tendency to pop up, and we know that, right? It, it, we, we just... For some reason, we tend to become arrogant when we know a lot. And he's warning against this. You may understand the Bible. You may understand your rights. You may understand your liberties. Do not become arrogant because of these things. 
Concerning idols, there are really no such things. And this is the arrogance that people might have. Um, Moses and Elijah both confronted idols and they exposed them for what they were. Just false gods. They were just fiction. Things made up by man. And, and Moses' plagues confronted the different idols of Egypt. And Elijah confronted the prophet Baal. And we see God's power over these false gods. And even though we understand that these gods do not exist, they're still worshipped, and therefore they still become very dangerous. Now, to the issue at hand, is it okay to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols? And what does this mean? And we need to rethink the pagan temples of that, of, of that day. We, you know, I don't know what our thoughts are, but these temples were, were, were um, kind of social places. Yeah, they were places of pagan idol worship, but there were also places where banquets and meals and different things would be conducted and, um, and the problem is people would go in there and they would associate themselves with this temple, with, with that God, because they would associate themselves just by, by going in and eating a meal. And some people really believed that, that um, these, these gods were real. And other people went into these temples real, realizing, hey, look, I just... We, we, we want to socialize, we want to enjoy it all, but we, we don't really believe in anything that, that this temple represents. But that was becoming a stumbling block to the others. And, and Paul says, you know, give some guidelines. My daughter is very allergic to, to milk, and so we're, all, we're always reading labels, my wife and I, always, all the time, just checking things. Um, and obviously, we know, pizza, ice cream... You know, the, some of the obvious milk product things she can't have. But it's the, it's the things that, that we don't know. Like, when we go to McDonald's, one of the only things she can have on the menu are, are fries because the burger has, like, milk protein in it. And so, the, so does the chicken and things like that. It's gross, right? And um, she's, had re- she's had reaction to it in the past. So we're, we're always reading and, and Paul is not saying that this is the way the Corinthians should be with the meat. Like, every time a steak is put in front of them, whoa, was this sacrifice to idol? No, he's, he's not saying that, that... He's telling them, you don't have to live like that. However, when it's obvious, stay away so that, so that um, your brother will not stumble. In verse 8 8, he says, But food does not bring us near to God, for we are no worse off if we eat it, and no better off if we do. That's the NIV. Um, so he brings up this point. Just be considerate of the weaker brother. Watch out. Don't purposely go in and defy um, you know, these idols because of your Christian liberty and because you understand so much. Don't cause your, your weaker brother to fall. And then in chapter 9, if we could look at that, we're not going to read the whole thing. I just want to highlight some things. Paul starts then to talk about his own freedom. As an apostle, he was free. Free to do certain things. Verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus? Verse 3, through, 3 and 4, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we, have, uh, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Go down to verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. In verse 19, we read, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. 
verse 22. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. 26 and 27. I do not run aimlessly. Um, I do not box as one um, beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And Paul is saying, as he lives his life, as an apostle, he understands he has freedom to do certain things, but for the sake of the weaker brother or sister, he will refrain from certain things. And in this case, the issue was food sacrifice to idols. And if it's going to cause them to stumble, let's rethink that a little bit. So when the Apostle Paul says, for, we understand that he's just finished speaking about, about this issue of the food sacrifice to idols. Now he talks in, back in chapter 10, um, he talks here in, in verse 3, he says that they ate the same spiritual food. And, and my understanding is that word is more correctly to be looked at as supernatural food. Food that was given given to the Israelites by God. And um, Paul is trying to draw a comparison here between the Israelites wandering the desert and the Gentile Corinthians back in the day, in that day. He's speaking in very spiritual terms at times. For while it is true that Israel followed a physical cloud and, and physically passed through the, the splitting of the Red Sea and physically ate the manna that God provided, but Paul is still trying to draw some spiritual comparisons as well. Um, being baptized into Moses, for instance, um, means that they put themselves under, the Israelites put themselves under the authority of Moses. Just as we have been baptized into Christ, we have put ourselves under the authority and submission to Jesus. And, and Paul talks about this in Romans and Galatians. The manna that God provided, and, and it says that he provided the manna, right, and also the water from, from the rock. The manna was supernatural as to its origin and the rock as to its nature. The manna's origin was heaven, a very supernatural way to, to receive food. The rock, its nature is just to sit there, right? But this rock in particular, or these rocks, produced water. And what are we to make of this rock when he says the rock was Christ? Very interesting statement. I don't believe that what he's saying is that this rock was, was physically Christ, as we see, you know, Christ in the New Testament is a man on this earth. That's how he comes to us. I don't believe in the Old Testament he appeared as a rock. But rather I think that Paul is looking at, at Christ's deity and pointing out that Christ supplied for them even in the wilderness. And he's the same God, same God that provides for them. Um, and um, just, for the, just for the sake of time, let me just move down here. Um, that their arrogance caused them to fall in the, in, the, in the wilderness. Why? Why did their arrogance cause them to fall? We look down in verse, um, in verse 7, and it says that, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. And uh, this is referencing uh, Exodus 32, which my brother preached on last week, concerning the idols, that, or concerning the idol that, that was constructed by Aaron. Because Moses was gone for too long, and the people became 
anxious and they just, they just wanted something, so they constructed this golden calf and they started to worship it. And not only that, but throughout, throughout um, the, their journey in the desert, it says that they indulged in, in sexual immorality. Um, this is when, when they took the Moabite women who they were forbidden to marry uh, people of other nations. They took these Moabite women and they started to serve their gods. And God destroyed many of them. They also grumbled. These same people who grumbled in, uh, who, who, who were delivered from, from Egypt now began to grumble. That God save us just to let us die in the wilderness. And as we look at these, at these events, Paul is warning the Corinthian church, don't be like that. Understand what God has done for you. Don't dabble in the culture. He then goes on to say, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may, may be able to endure it. Now, in the context of what we've been reading, Paul is giving a warning that if you think that you're so, if you have such great liberty, if you think that, that you're so strong in your faith, watch out. Because is that not the trap of the Israelites? They perhaps were thinking that they were protected since they're God's people. What's going to happen? But we know that out of Egypt, the only people that who physically walked out of Egypt in that exodus, the only two people who saw the promised land were Joshua and Caleb. The other people who saw the promised land were the sons and daughters of those who who had come out of Egypt. That says a lot. They presumed too much about who they were, were God's people. Perhaps they thought they were untouchable. God is faithful. It says that no temptation has, has, has overtaken us that is not common to man. Things we're going through, they're nothing new. The things that the Corinthian church were, uh, was going through in terms of idols and, and, and their hearts swaying, these temptations were not new. Paul's bringing it all the way back to the Old Testament. These are ageless and timeless struggles. And um, but God is faithful. Just when you think that you that you, you cannot endure it any longer. It says that, that God is faithful to provide a way of escape. There is only one God to worship. He, he, there is only one God and He demands exclusive worship. The second point here is that there are no other gods. You know, um, let me real quickly um, say the words to this song. Uh, you may have heard it before. Uh, we're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. We hear he is a whiz of a whiz, if ever a wizard was. If ever, ever a wizard was, the wizard of Oz is one because, 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 because of the wonderful things he does. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. That's a happy song, isn't that? They're linked 
their arms are linked, they're, they're walking down the road. They're hopeful because they hear about this wizard. The scarecrow, he can receive a brain. Cool. The tin man, a heart. The cowardly lion, some courage. And Dorothy just wants to go home. And they go and they get to this Emerald City and it's just like building up. Like, wow, there's so much hope. This is so great. And they even meet this wizard and he's very powerful. He looks powerful. He's like this floating head with fire on the sides. And he gives him an impossible task. He says, I'll, I'll grant you a wish, but you need to go and retrieve the witch's broom. And they're like, the only way we could do that is if we kill her. And they go off and, you know what? Armed with the bucket of water, they accomplish their task. Okay? And they bring back the witch's broom. Okay? And um, as they're standing there, they're demanding that the, the, the Wizard of Oz grant uh, their requests. Well, Dorothy's little black rat walked over and saw a curtain, pulled the curtain back. And there's like this old guy. I don't even know what he's, what he's doing. He's just doing, working on some machinery at the fire. I don't exactly know what's going on there, but he's speaking into a microphone. And we know this classic line, right? Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Okay? This great figurehead, pun intended, the great eyes, he, he was just a diversion. The, the one really in control was this, was this guy whatever he's doing, you know, with the fire. Um, he's, he's the one that, that, that's really in control. What happens if we pull back the curtain on idols? Uh, verse 14, Therefore, my, my, uh, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Paul, this, is, this was read to us earlier. Paul says, flee from idolatry. It seems pretty understandable to us, even in our own culture. We can kind of understand that, right? Flee from idolatry. Some things become idols in our lives. Some things that, that we own are potential idols, or things that we w- would like to acquire can be potential idols in our lives. Things that, that take up a place in our heart, that share worship with God. But then Paul goes into this idea of the Lord's Supper or as we call it, communion. And, and he says, if we participate in communion, aren't we engaging in worship with the Lord? It's, I don't know how you view communion, but I view it as, as a really important part of our worship. It's a remembrance of what Christ did for us. It's, it's an act of worship that we do together. And... And Paul is saying that if you engage in that, how can you then engage in the worship of idols? How can your heart then be shared with other things? This hits home to Corinthians because, as I mentioned before, pagan worship was aggressively pushed in their culture. Apparently, some of the Corinthian believers were praising God in fellowship and then spending time in the temple. But what was their thinking? And I know their thinking was, was the same thing that sometimes we go through and we try to justify our actions. The first one is, I'm a Christian, and I'm secure about that. Nothing can hurt me or sway me. I can handle that. Don't we hear people say that? When they're involved in something that could be potentially dangerous, I can handle that, no problem. 
This is why Paul wants us to take heed, you know, lest we fall. Never think that you're too strong or too good. Don't ever think that, that you're not capable of falling. The most demoralizing thing, I think, for a Christian is when he believes he is strong. I'm really spiritually strong right now. And you know what? I don't read the Bible for a few days. That's fine. You know what? I'm really feeling strong right now. I haven't really prayed much, but you know what? Right now, I'm still, I'm still living on the spiritual high. And it's so demoralizing to fall when you think you're on a, when you think you're on a spiritual high. Maybe another thought is, I'm trapped and enslaved. I don't want to be involved in this, but I just cannot break the habit from my former life. Still struggling with these things. And, and Paul is sympathetic to that. He says that, that you know, he understands the t- temptations you're going through are real, but understand that, that many people have gone through these. But that God is faithful and provides a way of escape. He provides an exodus from these temptations. And um, it's difficult. And he's encouraging us to stay strong, not to give in. It's at labor pains when you think you cannot endure it anymore and the pains become stronger and stronger and stronger. But eventually it's over and gives birth to perseverance and reliance on God. I don't even understand that illustration. And you do it if you haven't had a baby. But it looks painful. Maybe the third thought was, what's the big deal? We know these idols aren't real. No. Who cares? Why are people getting so upset? These idols aren't real. Who cares if we're eating food that's sacrificed to idols? You don't bite into the meat and say, is there a little bit of demon in this? No. Paul reaffirms this in verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? He says, no, of course not. And we made this point earlier with Elijah and Moses. They're confronting false gods. Every god that we see, every religion that we hear about, the god is not real. There is only one god. As nice as we'd like to be with other people, as respectful as we can be, and I believe we should be respectful with people of other religions, we need to understand that their god is not real, according to the word of God. Not my words. This is from the Word of God. Um, but we understand that there's demonic influence behind it. I, I know that we're, you know, um, we haven't, you know, you might, you might say to yourself, wow, I haven't been to a pagan, idol, you know, pagan temple in years. Or, you know, we, we, that's not our culture. We're not, we're not really, we don't understand that part of it. But I do, under, I do believe, though, that um, idols... Whatever they might be, um, as a distraction, are used by Satan. You know, this were the Wizard of Oz here in Corinthians. Imagine the, uh, the Corinthians and Paul standing before an altar. Some of the Corinthians are skeptical. They're just there for good food and fellowship. Others are there because they actually believe that this is, this is a real and true God that they're coming to worship. But Paul walks over to the booth, hidden by a curtain, and he pulls back the curtain, and instead of some old guy, what he actually sees is a demon doing whatever. And what they didn't realize is behind those idols were demons. They're not serving that real God. Baal, not real. 
demons behind it. So am I saying that is there a demon behind every flat screen? Are there demons in your shoe collection or in your wallet? I'm not implying that. But I do believe that those things do become our idol, whatever it might be materially or even relationships or whatever might become our idol. That Satan is using that to divide our hearts. And so we must stay strong. I understand that that our culture is very different. But in the same sense, um, it does, we are pushed. Or different views and, and, and different gods are pushed on us. And still struggles with, with the same things. You know, their prostitution is real in Chicago, right? Uh, we don't have golden calves, but we see giant statues of Mary, right, making its way around the city. We're tempted to superstition. Some of us might have a crucifix that feels that we feel protects us around our neck or in our house or somewhere because we feel or on a candle, right? Or something, right? We feel like this protects us. We begin to innocently read horoscopes and then to slowly believe believe them. And we start putting our trust in things that have no power except for demonic influence. So we provoke the Lord to jealousy. Are we stronger than he? That's the thought. That's the question. Do we, really, do we really want to pick a fight with God? Go back and, and read 1 Kings, I think, 18 is where we read it. God versus Baal. And then decide, do you want to, do you want to engage in that, in that fight? Don't forget the warning. Don't forget this warning. that when, If you think you're strong, be careful. My last point I'll make very quickly First point, there's only one God. Second, there are no other gods. Third point, live for the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And we know these verses, right? All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the marketplace without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If one of if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice and do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with, thanks, with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or, or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And he brings, back, brings us back to his principle, our rights. We think we owe it to ourselves all the time. What are our rights? Rick Warren begins his, his book, The Purpose Driven Life, with this quote. It's not about you, and he elaborates a little bit more on it. He says, The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, the peace of, 
uh, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you're placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by His purpose and for His purpose. And when we understand that, we understand a little bit more uh, of of what this means to give up our rights. Uh, real quick, I was in the car one day with somebody who really did, believes that, that rock music um, is um, evil. Evil, to, to, you know, to say the least. And um, I knew this. And although I, w- I was thinking, you know, there's no way he can prove this in, in the Word of God, that, that rock music is, is evil. Um, I was listening to rock music in the car when he was there. And it wasn't a bad, it wasn't a bad group or anything. I had nothing immoral. And, um, but I knew that he, that, that he didn't agree with this. And then I was, I was kind of convicted with that. Because if I'm to say that he's the, the spiritually immature one because he doesn't understand scripture, and I want to show off my maturity, does that not make me the more immature one? How can a mature believer play to the weaknesses of his brother or sister? And when Paul says, should my, should my, um, um, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? I don't think he's saying that we flaunt our liberties in people's faces. I think that if somebody has one conviction, you don't have to live by that conviction. But what he is saying is don't flaunt that in, that, in their face. And don't do anything that's going to cause them to stumble when you're around them or if a word is going to get back to them. Don't do those things. It's much bigger than that. And um, the charge here is that to do everything for the glory of God. Everything that we do, whether we're eating or drinking or playing or watching sports in our relationships, occupations, in our families, and everything that we do, do it for the glory of God. Our rights will fade away and we will forget about our own advantages. Don't allow your liberty in Christ also to become an idol. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am in Christ in verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Paul put, put aside his rights because Christ put aside his. What idol, do you, what idol shares your heart today? What are you willing to do to rid, that, to rid it of your life? And what liberties do you flash in people's faces only to their spiritual detriment? We have to understand there's something greater at stake here. There's something far greater. Maybe what is not an idol to us might be an idol to somebody else and we need to be careful with the way that we live our lives. At the end of the day, we need to remember that we all serve one God. And because of that, we shrink away. There is only one God, only one, and He does not share glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you've given us these words, Lord, that you have um, Lord, just shown us that it's not about us. We so often think it is. Lord, forgive us for that. Help us to understand, Lord, that, that Lord, this life is about you, Lord. And in order to save others, Lord, can we just put aside our personal rights, put aside our preferences sometimes, Lord, and, and, um, and stop thinking about ourselves, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We, we give this over to you in your name. Amen. And uh, we also invite you to, to pray with prayer counselors uh, during this last song.